the people that we lose are never really gone. And I was in the muck for a really long time, but I know that he wouldn't want me to be like that all the time. For a while, I thought that was like proving something by being sad. I felt like I had to constantly show how devastated I was to prove my love for Ian, which is fucked up because I don't have to prove anything to anybody. Danielle, again, I want to thank you for being on here. Uh, Again, I know for those that don't know, a friend literally forwarded me the episode on your own podcast where you gave Dead Talks a little bit of a shout out. And I thought that was awesome. So I appreciate that, of course. But then it drew me into why you all were speaking about grief and loss in the first place outside of that episode. And so you mentioned you lost your father and then your fiance. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is all within a couple of years? No. So actually, I lost my dad when I was 19. Um, and I'm I'll be 33 in a couple of days. So it's been quite some time since I lost him. But I lost Ian, who is my fiance, in May of last year. So it's been just about a year and a half. Oh, wow. So it's been pr- it's pretty fresh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, do you want to start with either of them? Because I mean, uh, I, I was, I'm always interested in, you know, that, the dynamics of loss, because obviously those are two different men in your life. And, you mm-hmm. know, grief is grief in many ways, but I'm sure the process is different. In, in regards to those two, did one, pr- did it prep you for the second, like for the second loss? Or was there any correlation between how you handled either one? That's an awesome question because they couldn't be more different, I feel like, as far as how I've processed their losses. So I have not ever been really a stranger to death. I've always been extremely drawn to it. I've grew up with my dad being my best friend. I was his only kid and he treated me like an adult, like a small adult. And he was really into death, dying and specifically the paranormal. So when I was, you know, five, six years old, we were delving deep in, you know, in the the history channel days of like, there was all these paranormal shows and Mm -hmm. things like that that were on after school. I would watch that Close Encounters of the Third Kind, hence my (laughs) UFO fascination. Um, All of that stuff I was just really exposed to at a young age, and I was really drawn into it. At first, the hook was the paranormal, like, ooh, spooky. Um, But it's evolved over time. In college, I was thinking of going for funerary studies or forensics. So death has always been a really big interest of mine, but I never really had any close experience with it myself, except for the death of grandparents. Um, I lost all of my grandparents except for one by the time I was in my 20s. So other than that, no real close deaths until my dad. And he died when I was 19. It was very sudden. It was a heart attack. He called me the night before and um, we spoke. My parents had been divorced since I was like two, so we didn't live together. But um, yeah, he called me the night before. We chatted. Everything seemed okay. And then the next morning, I got a call from an aunt that I never talked to, and I knew that something was up. And I actually found out through Facebook, which was awful. One of my cousins, and he feels so bad for it now, but one of my cousins wrote just a status of RIP, and I knew that it was about my dad because I had just got off the call, the phone with my aunt that was like, hey, um, can I have your mom's phone number? 
I have something to talk to her about. And I was like, you haven't talked to my mom in over 20 years. What's going on? So that's kind of how I found out. And then it evolved from there. Um, and after that, I was, I was angry. <laughs> I went through the anger phase. And it didn't help that it happened two days before the sophomore year of college classes began. So that really dove me into, I'm living in a dorm with a bunch of other 19-year-olds, and I have no other siblings that lost this parent. My mom had remarried long ago, moved on with her life. I felt like I was the only person who was grieving this person, which isn't true. He had family, of course, but I was pissed, and I just turned to drinking and partying and numbing myself for sure. Um, during those first few years. So you're saying that anger came from the fact that other people weren't mourning or grieving with you in a similar way? Is that what you're saying? I feel like, yeah. I feel like I was such a daddy's girl. Like I, him and I were thick as thieves. He treated me, like I said, like an adult from a young age. I always felt very respected and loved by him. And... I thought he was just the coolest guy in the world. And then all of a sudden he's gone and I have no one to be like, what the fuck with? Like, I just felt like my mom obviously was very sympathetic. Obviously her kid is going through a, a big loss and a big life event. But she, like I said, she was remarried. She had, if it wasn't for me, she probably wouldn't have known for quite some time that my father passed away. And I had no other sibling to go through this with. And I just felt very isolated and alone. And I'm surrounded by people my own age that have their parents, you know, like constantly having parents come in, help them move in to their college dorm, come to different events, do things like that. And it's not to take away from the presence of my mom and my stepdad, but it's just not the same. And I was the only person who had lost a parent that I knew at that time. So it was really isolating and I was angry about it. Yeah, it makes sense, especially, uh, I'm not trying to dumb down all 19 year olds, but when, especially at that age, when you have no idea what it's like to lose someone or even go through something quote unquote hard, even though, I mean, everyone goes through something hard and the hardest thing you've ever gone through is the hardest thing you've ever gone through. But there's almost like an, a sense of ignorance there that I can see why it would be frustrating being surrounded by all that. And you said you went towards, you leaned towards drinking? Uh-huh, oh yeah. How long did you feel that went on? That went on for, I would say, probably about a year, like, hardcore. Um, that whole sophomore year of college, I had been on the dean's list my whole high school career, freshman year. I wasn't, like, a star student, but I definitely had my stuff together, um, and I took pride in that. And that year, like... D's get degrees, baby, um, because <laughs> I definitely uh, tanked pretty much everything. Um, I barely got through and I turned to drink. I was drinking the moment I got up. I was taking shots. I drank throughout the day. And of course, college culture is Thursday through Sunday standard. Um, but I was taking it to a different level to the point that I was blacking out Almost every other day, I was definitely a mess. And it was at those times that I really let go of like my emotions and would cry a lot. And 
that year was difficult to probably be around me. Did you know what you were doing consciously? I don't know if that's a silly question, but did you, and with awareness, go, I'm going to drink because I don't want to remember this? Or was it in regards to what you just said, I'm going to drink because I actually let my emotions out? I think it was a little bit of the former. I think it was, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> like subconsciously, yeah, probably. Um, but like you said, not to dumb down 19-year-olds, but I didn't really know much of anything at that time. And to really sit down and reflect on why is it that I'm actually doing this, there was no thought of that. What was your drink of choice? Oh, Sanka. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, I was 19. That, that would make anyone's grief process worse. <laughs> you kidding me? <laughs> I was 19, okay. Um, yeah, so it was, and I even, my mom, we, we don't laugh about it now because it's not funny, but we can like reflect on it with a little bit of a lighter heart. But there was one day I'll never forget. She came to take me out to, to um, breakfast or something. And she only lived about an hour away from where I went to school in New Hampshire. So it was a quick drive. She came over to take me out for breakfast and I had already begun drinking. And I remember her picking me up, but I blacked, I had blacked out. And the next thing I know, I'm back home in my apartment and I have an email in my inbox from my mom. And it's, the title was Concerned. And oh. she wrote a, me a big email about how concerned she was for me. And, you know, you have to tread lightly. I, you know, I just am going through a lot. But at the same time, there's a line of when you need to, like, pull it back in and start getting it together a little bit. And I think that was a big turning point for me. And that really helped me. In the moment, I was angry. But yeah, that was a turning point for sure. If you don't, what was the, what was the tonality of that letter? I mean, uh, whatever you feel like diving into, but I'm curious because as an approach from a, a parent that has, is dealing with a child that's grieving and may not know how to approach it, it seemed that worked in many ways, right? So yeah. what was that tonality? What, what were the words in that email? I think it was more of a tough, my mom has always been, um, I wouldn't say tough love is the right term, but it's kind of like, okay, enough's enough type of thing. And at this point, she it's not like she was like, okay, that's sad and people die and let's move on. It was nothing like that. And we can talk about it later, but she also had a much different approach when Ian passed away um, as far as how she supported me. But with this particular circumstance, I think that, it was just because there was such heavy drinking going on that it started to become concerned, not just because I was grieving, but concern for how I'm coping with grief is going to is was currently affecting me and how that would affect me in the future if I continued down that road. And it's just so funny to reflect now because I barely ever drink. Like I don't enjoy drinking. I've never been like that, it was definitely a coping mechanism. And I can see that now. But in the moment, I needed that outside person to be like, here's a mirror, look at it. And um, let's start to get it together. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I, from based on how you started the story with the, you know, you're feeling some anger towards feeling isolated. You know, I feel like that could easily go the wrong way when someone, even though it's your mother, someone 
that maybe part of the piece where you're feeling the isolation may say something like that. You could easily take it the wrong way. You know, I, I guess you did say you felt anger towards it. So it's a big perspective shift to take it the way you did. And also the way I was, uh, it's funny, here goes my rant. I was thinking about it the other day about, you know, I'm, I'm, when I post a lot of these clips on my podcast, a lot of the stories about applicable ways you can handle grief or just whatever the heck you're going through and do this, do that, or this work for me. But I, I was raised in a similar sense of you saying your mom kind of came with a, a tough love approach. You know, my mom came with a love I was very aware of. She expressed extreme amount of love, but also I did come up with a, um, you know, get up and go kind of shit. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that is important too. You know, you could always go with, oh, I feel this. You can do that. You can journal. You can express yourself. You can talk about it. But I think sometimes you got to just get up and go. You got to like almost take the anger and use it as motivation and realize you got to be tough sometimes. You got to maybe, it might come off as insensitive, but sometimes you got to get the fuck up. And mm-hmm. just go handle your shit and move forward. Like I understand it's sad and losing someone is very difficult, but sometimes you, this is life and this is the things we go through. And I don't know, you could either just kind of crumble or sometimes you just got to step up and get a little hardened. But I think that comes with balance. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because I am such that type of person. And yeah. I it can come across as cold um, to be like that. But I have found it immensely helpful because without that type of attitude, and there's a time and a place to do that, to journal, self-reflect, shut yourself in, do whatever you need to do, which I did um, with Ian's loss for quite some time. But it comes to the point where, (laughs) to quote Ian's mom, she's like, I'm just sick of feeling this way. I'm sick of feeling sad and I'm tired of this pity party. And it sounds so bizarre coming out of the mouth of someone who just lost their child. But I totally understand that because I've been there. It gets to the point that it's like, all right, enough is enough. And if this was someone else, I would be like, okay, let's start moving forward. And it's not to say that it isn't hard, but sometimes you just have to pull yourself out of the your own muck. And it sounds so harsh to say, but it's true. Um, but the anger part also that came with my mom a little bit was, which I've expressed to her before, was I was like, well, you still have your dad. You don't know what this feels like. You got to have your dad walk you down the aisle twice you know, so to say, when she got remarried, like he's there for her second marriage. He was there for her children, grandchildren, and all the big life events. And you can call him and it just, it was kind of like a comparison thing, which I hate to do. And it's something I actively work on. But um, yeah, that's another big thing. So I was like, how dare you? You don't even know. Yeah. That's something that's hard to let go too. That comparison, because I think about that. I, I feel like I flipped it at some point. I, but at the same time, it was frustrating when I used to see friends growing up, like to almost shit talk their parents. Oh, because mm-hmm. of this, like typical teenager stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, oh, you have fucking no idea. Like, I know. Like I, I remember, I think back of a moment my dad, at the moment as a kid, really he died. He passed when I was 12. So this is really early on. He like embarrassed me at school, not intentionally. He literally dropped right. me off. And my dad was known for saying, hey, kid, like, hey, kid, that was his thing. And it was just a thing my mm-hmm. dad was known for. And as I was, he dropped me off for school, which he really did because he was usually at work. 
And as I'm walking in this school, my dad is just yelling at the top of his lungs. I'm probably like nine years old. He's like, hey, kid. Like all the way, I'm like halfway through the hall and he's still yelling <laughs> from the street. I was mortified. As a young kid, not being aware of it, I was like You're so right. embarrassed. I'm pretty sure I told my mom, like, can you take me to school? And then I think about it faster. I'm like, I would take that moment of embarrassment any day of the week, every day mm-hmm. for the rest of my life because of that. You know what I mean? And then when you 100%. see other people not take that, you know, these little moments, they take it, they take it for granted. I get it. I'm not pointing the finger because you just don't know. Right. But it is hard to see in that lens when you've experienced what you've experienced. And then they say comparison is the thief of joy. In this case, like comparison is the grief of joy in many ways. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's just hard. I know it is hard. And comparing losses and comparing life experiences and what you said at the beginning is something that I, it's like my mantra you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to you is still the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And it's such a difficult thing to wrap your mind around when, you know, because after Ian passed away, I was flooded with messages, which were all so appreciated and obviously um, heartfelt for someone to write a message, whether it's an email, DM, whatever, just reaching out. And I understand people do this out of wanting to connect to you um, in some way, but saying, you know, I, I understand because I lost my, you know, fill in the blank. I lost my great aunt and my grandfather, you know, this, that, whatever. And I have to stop and be like, I don't know what the relationship was like. It's not my place to be like, yeah, but... Because the yeah buts are going to get you every time. And it doesn't matter. Like, they still lost someone. It's still the hardest thing they've ever gone through. It doesn't matter if they didn't lose a spouse or a significant other. They still lost a loved one. And that comes with its own set of challenges. And the, I really have to remind myself to be like, okay, yes, but X, Y, Z. You don't know because, you know, fill in the blank. So that's something I actively try to work on every single day. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good practice. I think it offers some compassion towards people and patience because I think there, when, you, when you do compare someone X, Y, Z, it's like, how's, why is this person complaining about that? There's so many intricacies in life, let alone just loss, everything we're going through. You, you, there's so many variables, relationships, monetarily, X, Y, Z. There's just so many things that really alter the way people react, the way they were raised. It's like most of the time I'm like, I don't even, I mean, you can tell when someone's being an asshole and that person's just literally an asshole, but sometimes the person's an asshole because of something else, you don't have no idea. Right. So I think it really is a lesson of patience with people and a little bit more understanding without understanding. And uh, it's, that's a big part of it. It's an incredible lesson that you're soaking up at such a young age. You know what I mean? But in regards to Ian, your your fiance, Mm -hmm. uh, so what what happened, what happened with him? So um, Ian was 28 years old when he passed away. For the week leading up to his death, he was having headaches and he went to urgent care on Cinco de Mayo and he uh, got some, you know, medication. Just they're like, yeah, yeah, you have a headache, a pretty bad one. Here's some, here's some meds. He took them home and then they weren't really doing much. And then the next day, Um, it was getting so bad that he was just like, he was vomiting. He was throwing up. He was like, I've never had a migraine this bad in my life. So we took him to the ER and we were there Thursday night, 
from 11 to about midnight where he received some IV medications for his migraine. And they had me drive him home because he was going to be a little groggy, got some Benadryl. And we go to bed. And at around five or six in the morning, I woke up and he was postictal. So meaning he was coming out of a seizure. And I am not involved in human uh, medicine. I never have been, but I was a veterinary nurse for, you know, almost 10 years. So I've been in the medical field to some capacity and I recognized what was happening. He was coming out of a seizure. So I called 911 because I thought that he was having an adverse reaction to whatever he gotten in in his IV just a few hours before. Even though I asked if there was anything I should look out for, they basically just just said he's going to be really tired because of the Benadryl. So I was freaking out because of that. And I actually recorded him at that time after I called 911 to show paramedics what I was seeing. So I didn't have to describe it. I could show them. And I was asking him questions. And I was saying, hey, like, are you okay? What's going on? And he would open his eyes a little bit and he would speak, but it didn't make sense. He was talking about like microwaves and just different gibberish, but they were complete words and sentences. They just didn't make sense. So I'm like, okay, he's confused. This is normal for coming out of a seizure. And then I, the last thing that I said to him that he actually responded to was, I said, everything's going to be okay. Okay. And he said, okay. And then the paramedics came and they were asking him a bunch of questions. What's his name? What's his birthday? Where is he living right now? And he responded correctly to everything. But then he would say, but who are you? What's happening? Who are you? And I'm like, Ian, there's 10 paramedics in here. What do you mean? Who are you? You know, it was just, there was no connection going on. So they're like, well, We don't know exactly what's happening, but it's clear that he's postictal, so we're going to bring him to the hospital. And I remember saying, okay, I'll meet you there. And I got a little canvas bag and I put in a bunch of his stuff. I'm like, he's going to need all this when we come home. Like I put in his shoes, a new change of clothes. I took care of the dogs and and I went to the hospital and I got there and he was set up in a room and he was hooked up to a bunch of monitoring equipment, but there was no one in there with him. It was kind of just like, he's stable and we're just going to leave him here. So I sat down and I was reading a book, waiting for the doctors to come. It was around seven in the morning and um, he started getting really agitated. So once again, I started videotaping him to show the doctor when they came and he was trying to rip off all his monitoring equipment and he was just increasingly agitated. I I went to get the nurses twice and I was like, hey you know, I'm trying to advocate for him. Like something is fucking wrong. And they kept saying, well, the doctors are changing rotations right now. One should be coming soon. It's just a shift change. And I accepted that. And I went back into his room and all of a sudden I'm looking at his monitoring equipment. And because I worked uh, in surgery at the animal hospital, I could read, you know, what was normal, what wasn't. And his oxygen levels were plummeting. And I look over at him and he's actively seizing again. So I went out, got the, do- the nurses, and all of a sudden they look at him and look at his monitoring and they go, oh shit. And all of a sudden, 10 of them 
are on top of him. They shove me into the corner. I'm watching this whole thing unfold. He was foaming at the mouth, having a seizure. They intubated him, and he never woke up um, from there. So essentially what happened is he was having headaches because he had what's called a colloid cyst, which is benign, and it's tiny. It was only, it was 1.4 centimeters, and it was this little cyst that was in the third ventricle of his brain that was blocking the cerebral fluid from coming from his brain down to his spine and back. We flush gallons and gallons of it every single day. But that little cyst blocked that tube and caused significant brain swelling to the point where he experienced brain death. So uh, the other part of that, not only was me being the only one there, as far as a loved one, we had moved to Washington and all of our friends and family were in New Mexico, Colorado, and New England. So now I am here at the hospital. He's rushed into emergency brain surgery and... He comes out a couple hours later. I notified his family, of course. You know, I'm like, he's in the hospital. You need to come. And they're, you know, scrambling to get on planes to come see us. And um, I was in his ICU room. They wheeled him back in. And the neurologist came in and shut the door behind him. And I just knew. And as I was holding Ian's hand, he said, I can tell you with 100% certainty that he will never recover from this. And in that minute, in that moment, it felt like I separated into two people, like the before and after. And I didn't feel that with my dad. I didn't feel this separation of myself when I got the news that my dad passed away. But when Ian passed away, I had this moment of separation in my life that literally nothing will ever be the same. And my life just went off into two paths. It's like I watched it diverge. And I, in that moment, I was dealing with that, but I was also dealing with, now I have to tell, I am the only person in Ian's world that knows he's dead. And I need to tell his loved ones that. And that is a moment that I don't wish on anyone because not only am I going through it, I just went through this compartmentalization of I'm going to deal with that emotion later and I'm stepping into what happened, what can we do? I need to know every single detail of that surgery. I need to know everything. I just like turned into another person, like a robot, because I needed to advocate for him and understand for everyone else what happened because I knew there was going to be a lot of questions and I needed to kind of put on a brave face and understand from the medical standpoint what happened so I could communicate that to everyone else instead of just being like, I don't know. I don't know what happened. So I've, I've really been, um, you know, I read his entire autopsy report. I want to know the ins and outs. I've talked to hundreds of doctors, his 
you know, his organ donation team. I want to know everything. And it's hard, but he's the person I love most in the whole world. So I want to know everything there is to know. <sighs> Danielle, thank you for sharing that. Um... I've never said that. I've never told anybody that in its entirety other than, you know, the people who really need to know. But uh, yeah, it was awful. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's as real as it gets. Did you go, did you feel like when you said you split into two and you had to know this information, did you just feel like you went straight into survival mode? A hundred percent. Yeah. I literally, and it's kind of reflected back at me in a physical form because that book I was reading, I have this bookmark in the page that I was reading when he started to have his last seizure. And I, it just sits on my shelf because I can see physically where I was at. Like the words I read before that bookmark, I I had a different life planned. And then now everything that I have yet to read, it's like this new life that I didn't necessarily want. And I'm still struggling to accept. And yeah, I was definitely in a survival mode. And I was for the first maybe two weeks when everyone was around and asking questions and you know, I was kind of on the front line, so to speak, because I was the only one there. Absolutely. Oh, man. Okay. So you tell me how you felt with this, but in regards to your instinct of, you know, I mean, I think it's natural to know, to truly know why and what happened as opposed to just sink into some other place. Mm-hmm. Did that have any correlation of, you know, that existential question of how the hell this could happen? Because, I mean, my innate pull from, you know, losing your dad and losing your fiance. I mean, not to mitigate this or sound insensitive, but I feel like a, a parent innately we think is going to pass before us. And then, so even though it happened very early, it's still a slap in the face and a shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think it's partially, you know, I mean, you had plans to spend the rest of your life with your fiance and then yeah. that's, a, that's a totally different shock. So is there any correlation of needing to understand what happened to give you some sort of I don't want to say closure because I don't know if there's were ever truly closed out, but some more of an understanding and justification in some sense, or just strictly just to be that frontline person and explain to everyone what happened. I think that in the direct aftermath, as it was unfolding, it was more of out of, I need to know everything because I want to share everything with people he cares about. I didn't want to be that person that was just floundering around completely like, I have no idea what happened. I'm so like lost and it's such a shock and which is totally acceptable, right? you know, but also I felt as if I was Ian's advocate and what a great honor that is. I wanted to know what happened to him? He, well, yeah, like you said, he, my dad was 50 when he died. So yes, it's young, but also there is a certain cadence to life that, you know, your parent is likely going to pass before you. And even though it was hard, it was something that you could swallow a bit better. But with Ian, he was, he just celebrated his 28th birthday. He was, and it sounds so cliche, but he was such a good guy. And it's like, why him? 
you know, I could name five other people off the top of my head that should have gone, you know, if we're basing this off of who deserves to be here and not. And yeah, selfishly, (laughs) I was like, my whole life is ruined. I finally found the person I had never, I've had relationships before, but I always was like one foot in, one foot out. I was never super committed. And with Ian, it was the complete opposite. I had never wanted to get married. I would, you know, I wanted to elope with Ian, you know, like I was ready to do it. And we lived together and our whole lives were braided together. And I was like, this is finally, this is what everyone's talking about. I've been waiting, you know, like I never understood the whole, like, I'm so in love and this is my person. Before I was like, yeah, but there's, you know, how many billions of people I'm sure you could, (laughs) like, again, with the kind of cold type of thing. But with Ian, it was completely different. So I felt robbed. I felt robbed and angry for a brief bit, but more so I'm just under this weighted blanket of sadness. Like I don't even have the energy to be angry because I'm sad for me. I'm sad for his family. I'm sad for him. I mean, he didn't get to live his life. He was just like starting out life in one way. So every single day, I'm kind, I kind of envision it like this tangled ball of yarn with a bunch of different colors. And every color represents some part of grief. Grief about, over the loss of my future, what I thought my future was going to be. Grief for Ian, grief for me, grief for his parents, grief for the trauma of seeing him pass away in front of me. Like all of these different things. It's like, what am I sad about right now? Which, because it's hard when everything's so tangled together. And I, it's really helpful for me to be like, what is this emotion? And what, like, how can I identify it and kind of pull it out of this mess and deal with that right now? And it's a fucking process. And a year and a half later, I'm still dealing with it. But that's been helpful to just be like, there's a lot going on here. So let's try and understand what's happening in this exact moment. That's part of the process that I don't think is talked about often. And it's been discussed. I brought this up on other episodes, but I'm happy you mentioned that because there's so many layers to it. There's, you know, I think on the surface, like, oh, this person lost when they're grieving the loss. They're grieving the person they died. But in your case, for a perfect example, no, you're going to be dealing with the tra- trauma that you just went through, just simply witnessing that, whether mm-hmm. that was him or someone else or just witnessing that in any capacity, that is a trauma. That is a shock effect that is going to stick with you in an image that is hard to get over in general. The trauma of just having to be that person to explain what happened and be that frontline person. The fact that you just lost this person that you're never going to see them again. And then you're grieving your future that you thought you were going to have. So there's so many. And the, then even just the physical logistical aspect of having things in the house of that person. Like there's so many layers to this. Like you said, I love that, that ball, that yarn is such a perfect example, especially with the colors, because it's, I mean, literally not to be like, make a joke, but just literally taking a yarn out is fucking hard, let alone actually doing that emotionally. And through the process that you've gone through and it's only been a year and a half. So yeah. Have you become like, do you, do you, how different do you see life? Cause I feel like experiencing something like this where someone's just pulled away from you, you can easily just get cold. You can easily mm. just see the world in a lens of pes- being pessimistic. Like, are, are you, like, how different do you feel that Danielle is now from a year and a half ago? 
light years different. I can't even explain. I mean, with my dad, it was, again, different relationship, different time of my life, different age, yada, yada. But overall, I was very, uh, I was angry. Like I said, I was just, I reacted differently. I wouldn't say I would became like a Scrooge, but <laughs> I definitely was, I was hardened. And when I met Ian, so Ian also lost his dad when he was a teenager to cancer. So with him, I found someone that I could kind of talk about some of these things with. And that helped me a little bit process some of how I was feeling after my dad died, but um, even years later. But I would say it was just like, I was a little hardened for sure. But with Ian, it was like, I, whatever shell that I had formed when my dad died, the second that Ian passed away, it burst open. I couldn't be more empathetic and emotional and just like, I feel so soft now. And before I viewed that as a really big weakness in people. And it sounds again, harsh, but I was just like, God, like get it together. You know, like, why are you crying? Why are you so, and not only over sad things, over happy and beautiful things, like crying of joy. I had never cried of joy before, ever, or seeing something beautiful. I couldn't relate. I, my brain couldn't compute of how someone would get emotional over seeing something beautiful. Mm -hmm. And now I do. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like the, what's the saying? The same water that hardens the egg, softens the pasta. <laughs> I just fucked that up. I mean, I'm Italian. I haven't heard that one. So I oh, <laughs> I'm Italian too. And I feel like I just made that up. Did you literally just make that up? I mean, I I mean, okay. I don't have my phone, but I that. swear it's to like, God. I'm gonna point, I have no one at the studio, but I'm going to point to my person and say, can you fit the, Okay. Some, Google you it. Because that quote for us? <laughs> <laughs> can you harden the pasta with the egg that's no. boiled? I mean, what? No. no <laughs> You're probably right. You're probably right. You're probably right. But Do what? you get what I'm trying to say though? It's the same experience that mm -hmm. does one thing to somebody does yes. another to somebody else. And that's, I experienced both of those things with the two different passings. Yes. And, um, I, might, and yeah. I don't know you well, obviously just through this conversation, but my take, because I'm seeing, I got, again, I could be way off. Maybe we're completely different, but I, I feel a lot of similarities in the way we see things and maybe that's grief, maybe X, Y, Z, I don't know. Um, but that viewpoint that that softness can be viewed as a weakness, which I get because, you know, I, I think just the way I was raised, I, I saw that toughness, but it does kind of can turn into that really feel like I am, I am apparently emotional, but not in a chaotic way. Like I think I, I allow myself to feel it, but I'm able to maintain it in some capacity, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. I think that softness is a sign of strength because at the same time, even with that softness, I feel like someone like you will know when to harden up like mm -hmm. exteriorly exteriorly be soft but at mo you'll know when to be hard at the same time and to be tough you have that capacity to to, to be both and i think that's mm -hmm. a very important thing to be able to do is to see both sides like you just said you experienced and 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 went through i think that's an important capacity to go through life it's important to be compassionate be be soft in many ways to feel your emotions but then there's a time to okay time to get up, time to move, mm -hmm. time to be tough. And uh, yep. I feel I feel like today that's 
I don't again, I don't want to generalize, but I don't know. I feel like maybe we're like going to, I wonder if we're going too far to the emotional side. Like, I think it's good to express that. That's a big part of this podcast, but at the same time, it's got to be balanced with, okay, tighten up your, your laces. Let's get up. We got to go. We can't sit here. And again, back to my mom, that was a big thing that when I had her on the podcast and we got into it, she mentioned that she's like, I don't want to, like what you mentioned, I don't want to feel this anymore. Yeah. I think you said it was your, your, um. Ian's, Ian's mom. Yeah, yeah. Essentially my mother-in-law. Like, yeah. Like she, you went to go through it, but it's like, I, I, do, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's like that, mm-hmm. that blink. It's like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And it's not insensitive. It's not, um, you're not grieving. You're not feeling, you don't miss the, no, you got to, this life, the world keeps rotating and that's a reality. Mm-hmm. And we got, we have to keep going. And you just sitting there in the muck and just melting, it's not only affecting you in many ways, it's affecting the people around you. It's affecting so many other, other people. So it's like, it's, I hate to say it, but sometimes it's a little selfish to stay there in many ways. And maybe that's insensitive because it probably is. But I don't know. Sometimes you got to you gotta know when to step up and just move. Well, it's like the pendulum, you know, it's if it swings, it swings too far in either direction. There's not a balance. And I've been on both ends of the spectrum. And I would say right now I've found a happy medium and like I said, it's not anything that I ever wanted. I didn't. Yes, I will say that 100% I am a better person because Ian lived and died. And I, it's awful to say, and I wish he, with every fiber of my being, I wish that that wasn't true. I wish he was still here. I would give anything for that. But I am a better person because of him. And I wish I didn't have to I could have figured it out a different way, hopefully. Um, But it's just the cards that I was dealt. And I was in the muck for a really long time. I mean, so like I mentioned, we were living in Washington at the time for no real reason. We just wanted to experience life in the Pacific Northwest. We were able to at the time. So we moved there. And after he passed, I was in our house. And I shit you not, it was like, I think one of my friends said this. They were like, it's like a mausoleum. It's like a Ian museum in here. Like everything was exactly how he left it down to the beard trimmings in the sink, his sandwich in the, in the fridge, all his stuff was everywhere just as he left it. And like, I didn't even want to wash our sheets for months. Cause I'm like, but he he had just slept here. He was just here. And I didn't want to wash away, put away, give away, clean any physical remnant of him because that was my last, in my mind at the time, that was my last link to him. But I know now that's so untrue. I mean, not to get super woo-woo or anything, but Ian is so alive for me in my day-to-day life because I keep him alive through who I am, what I do, how I think of him. Um, I talk to him every day. I still, you know, I've moved. I moved back to Colorado and peeling myself away from that house. And that was hard, but I did it in my way at the time. I donated maybe one garbage bag of stuff that like he hadn't used in a while, but I literally packed up all his shit. I'm like, you're coming with me. (laughs) And I literally spent like thousands of extra dollars to move all of our stuff with me because I needed that. I needed to bring him with me in that way, even though 
they're just physical things and they don't mean anything really to him, obviously, anymore. But I needed that. And then slowly over time, I've, you know, stopped carrying his wallet with mine. I put his toothbrush away. I've, you know, I still keep some of these things, but I don't have them in my face all the time. And I think that going at my own pace has helped me a lot. But the most helpful has been realizing that the people that we lose are never really gone. And I 100% believe that. And I always have. But with Ian, I, I know that to be true. And I know that, you know, it sucks. I have to stay here. I have to be here, you know. And I was in the muck for a really long time, but... I know that he wouldn't want me to be like that all the time. But it's also interesting because for a while I thought that was like I was proving something by being sad. Whether it's to his friends, his his family, I don't need to explain anything to because we are so close. But outsiders, now that I have some public presence, you know, strangers... I felt like I had to constantly show how devastated I was to prove my love for Ian, which is fucked up because I don't have to prove anything to anybody. But it was like this link, this weird link that I don't know if you can relate to that in any way. I mean, it's it's been so long for me, but I I totally understand what you're saying um, anecdotally because there is that weird societal connection with grief. And when I say society, you're, like you said, you're more in a public light with your podcast, um, but just even societally around your sphere of people in your life, because mm-hmm. people are quick to judge. People are, are do have those comments like, oh my God, she's dating again. Oh my God, she's like out right now. Oh my God, she's seeing a movie. Oh my God, she just went on a vacation. Leave everyone alone. Like I, just whatever mm-hmm. you just let them, whatever you're going through, let them go through it. And it can't be judgments and people that even don't know or even do know. It's like even people that have grieved, they may have saved face in many, I don't, I don't mean to do this in like an egotistical way, but maybe it is egotistical because I get that feeling of, like for instance, even I, I, my mom almost died in July this year. It was without getting into the details again of what happened. She was on her deathbed. She's okay right now. And there was that feeling of like a, a couple of weeks after we knew the storm had passed a little bit and she was doing well. I remember like going to the city to handle a podcast. And even when I was there, I was like, am I supposed to be here? Like, is this, it's weird. Like, I felt guilty that I wasn't there. I wasn't feeling X, Y, Z. And I was like, is that just my ego or this or that? Because back in my mind, I know my mom, she literally said go, first of all, because she was right. like, get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. But it was still like that guilt. And I was like, is that, what is that guilt? Is that ego? Is that me feeling like I should feel a certain way when mm-hmm. I feel like we have to block that out? Listen, it shouldn't be, I should feel this way. I should be doing this. Just like you said, you went at your own pace. I think that is a a very important lesson that I'm taking from what you said. You went at your own pace, even Mm -hmm. though maybe it was, you said, blended with, should I feel this? Should I feel that? But I think that is a really big lesson. And it's hard to navigate that feeling of what other people are, how they're viewing your grief. And that's just life in general, the way we think how people look at us. And it's so wild because I've always been, yeah, I've always been like, I don't fucking, who are you? Like, I don't, I don't care. And I think it's also because I don't care. I am such a live and let live person and always have been. As long as you're not hurting yourself or others, 
go ahead, yes. go off. Um, you just, you don't need to personally relate or understand to anything anybody else does for it to be acceptable. And that for me, you know, went right out the window when it came to Ian, because it's also different because when my dad died, no one said that to me or kind of viewed me like that. They're like, okay, yeah, it's sad, but she should be like getting out, moving on and getting out from under the rock and life goes on. But there is something to be said about specifically a young woman who loses a partner. There's a huge social stigma associated with that, that I've learned firsthand. And also I've tried therapy. I am in therapy from time to time. But what I found most helpful was young widows groups, um, young widows groups online, on Facebook, things like that, just different forums to see what are other young widows talking about? What What is going on in their lives? And is it the same as what I'm experiencing? And overwhelmingly, there is just so much worry about moving forward and how other people are going to view them. And again, with the proving type of thing, whether it's, you know, there's so, I can't tell you how many people are out there who lost a significant other. And yes, it happens to, to men, um, but also um, I'm speaking more specifically about women of how people are going to view them. And there's so many people who just simply they're like, I'm dating in secret, or I'm afraid to say that I'm even open to dating, or even if it's taken them years. And it's like, on one hand, there's all these people who are saying, okay, it's been X amount of time, you need to move on and forward with life. And then as soon as you start to do that, you get all this judgment. And it's like, what can you do? And you just feel stuck. And I think that's really difficult for people. It's a roadblock in moving forward because even if you mentally get yourself there, then all of a sudden you're worrying about what other people think of you. Even if dating isn't involved, like you said, going to a movie, going to do some sort of personal thing, going out smiling, having a good time laughing. It's like, we've already put our, if whatever you're thinking, we've thought about it in every way, shape, and form for months before you had that thought. I can yeah. promise you that. And there is the stigma. I think it, uh, with women in particular, of course, both sides, men going too quick, quote unquote, going too quickly or whenever they find someone else. But I think it's definitely heavier on the women's side. If I had to be honest, at least my perspective, I think mm -hmm. it's, it is perceived differently if a woman finds a man sooner than a man finds a woman. That's just my thought. I don't know if that's accurate. I'm not looking at the stats. But I think there is just a different perspective against women and unfairly. Add it to the list. It's a sea scroll. It's a, it is a sea scroll. Yeah. Yeah, I was raised by women. I have some kind of cognitive understanding, mm -hmm. I think. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it is a, the idea of just like should. It's just a, no, in my head, I'm like, uh, you said don't be like, I don't want to be woo woo. I am woo woo and I don't really give a shit. Mm -hmm. I'm like, we don't know. No one knows. We, we don't know anything. Like we may, yes, this, that, we know a lot of things, but we know nothing. And just to judge people on what to do, especially with something as complex as this, you got to just let people, like you said, again, go at your own pace because it doesn't mean that person didn't love that last person. It doesn't mean they got over it quicker. It doesn't mean this or that. People heal differently. People mm -hmm. are able to move along that process a little faster for whatever reason. And it's a balance of both sides. It's like, I wish people wouldn't judge people so quickly. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's the reality of the world. People are going to judge. So I think it's more up to us to how we handle the views of others and just got to let that go because people are going to judge. It's going to ha- it's, it's what it is. It's going to happen. People are going to judge me, what I'm saying right now and X, Y, Z. And I th- just want people like you were saying to know it's okay to, if you do find someone else and whatever that pace is, hopefully it's not the next day. That may be a little weird, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if it's at a, whatever that pace, if it is that year, if it is a couple of years after, because again, when my mom lost her husband and my dad, even at a young age, it's like, I don't want my mom to be alone. I want her to find as uncomfortable. It may be for me, for another man to step in. It's like, I want my mom to find someone else. I was so happy when she did, even though it was an adjustment, mm-hmm. regardless how long it takes. I just wish, I hope women, men who do lose a significant other do find peace and let go of what other people think whenever that time comes when you feel, it's what, again, it's what you feel. I think if you if it feels yeah. right to you and if, like truly outside of the judgment, it's like, okay, then it's then you, if you feel something towards someone, are you going to ignore it? Right. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, the amount of emotional work that that person has to go through before somebody else finds out about their decision is an unbelievable amount of, you know, you have so much guilt and turmoil and this and that, and even at the thought, you know, and the thing is, no one wants to lose their person. (laughs) You know, like when this happens, I wish I didn't have to even fucking think about it. But I'm 33, and I did for a long time, for a solid year, I was sure that I was never going to be with anybody else. I didn't want to. There was no fiber of my being that I would get physically sick over thinking of that. And, But the reality of this world is different. And I think that, again, to be woo-woo, I think that Ian is supportive of whatever I choose to do because he loved me. And that's what love is. Love is supporting your person. And he's not physically here anymore. And I have to deal with that. I am still in the physical world. And sometimes, even though I wish I wasn't, it's the reality. And part of being in the physical world is, you know, sharing love with others. And However you choose to channel that, whether that's with a significant other, a project, a, you know, life's work, whatever it is, we just have to deal with it. You know, for a long time, I was like, I just simply do not want to exist. And again, going back to the bootstraps thing, it's like, well, this is it, honey. So <laughs> let's get it moving again. And whatever decision uh, I make going forward with anything a significant other, somewhere to live, what to do, how I honor Ian. It's a personal choice. And for anyone who has lost a significant other, especially if you weren't legally married, because that's another whole thing that people tend to shame. It's like, you're not a true widow if you weren't married. It's like, like, don't even get me started on that. Um, But yeah, it's just like, yeah, the whole whatever, who are you? It, your opinion, as long as you're not someone who I truly care about, I will obviously listen to my loved ones, but the people who love you will support you and that's what matters. And to take advice or hear comments from people who have never experienced what you experienced is silly. And it's hard to do in practice. It's easy on paper, but that's a part of life is moving forward with those things and putting them into practice. 
and kind of living your own advice. You know, it's easy to blab with you about it, but you know, if I read a comment, you know, tomorrow, like, you know, why is she out like celebrating Christmas? I'd be like, I don't know. Why am I? You know, so <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's all, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, we got, I think we got to trust ourselves a little bit more. And does it feel good to you? Does it feel good? It does. You feel, you feel all right about it? Okay. Thing to go. Yep. Thing to go. Because it, it, we're so easily shifted. Like you said you read one comment. Like that's happened to me a couple of times now. I'm like, really, just don't give a shit anymore. But I'm like, I read a comment. Oh, you shouldn't have asked that question. You shouldn't. Why did you post this video? I'm part of it early on when I was very self conscious about the podcast and like, I really just wanted to work. Mm. I'm like, oh my god, should I not put that? I'm like, well, this is one part. Like, what? What am I, am I? Why am I letting that? Like, I did it for a reason. I did it because I felt good about it. I got. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to forget that. You could easily forget that when someone makes one comment and or one judgment towards you. So let's just. Everyone just chill out. Just chill out. Let it go. Oh, with the comments. I thank God I have Cassie, who is my, you know, one of my best friends and my co-host for our podcast. But Yeah, talk about that, by the way. Oh, my God. Well, okay. So I have always been, like, super fiery. And, like, I get pissed really easily. My, My former self. The old Danielle. Uh, you're hard right. and egg. Yeah, the hard and egg. I'm soft pasta yeah. now. Um, you're, you're soft uh, farfelli <laughs> or uh, linguini. Yeah, linguini, fettuccine. But um, anyways, so she takes care of, you know, looking at reviews and ratings. And, you know, I can't help but see certain if an email comes directly to our, I mean, we're a team of two. People always say to the National Park After Dark team, it's like, it's just us. But I can't help but see certain emails, which is largely, you know, 99% of emails that come through are supportive. But reviews and comments are something I stepped away from immediately because I had gotten fired up about them before, similar to what you were saying. It's like, this is your pride and joy. You're, it's, your passion, it's your work, and you're putting 40 hours into an hour of content that people see, and you get shit on for something small about it. And it just totally ruins your day. And I would get fired up about that before, but it really, like, I couldn't take a single other thing after Ian passed, especially when I really drew the line when we got a review on Apple and I saw that Cassie had emailed Apple to ask to get it removed. And I saw that email. I didn't see the review. I saw the email and she quickly deleted it. And I was like, what is that about? Do I even want to know? And she was like, no, you don't want to know. But of course, I was like, well, why are you petitioning Apple? They take it down. Like, that seems extreme. So I'm like, what is it? And she, she ended up telling me someone had written a review about because I wrote, I made an episode for Ian, um, dedicated to Ian, and someone had listened to it and said that I should be ashamed that I wasn't using my platform adequately to talk about the dangers of drug overdoses. And I had never disclosed what happened to Ian. And for someone to assume that he died of a drug overdose, which no shame to anyone who has passed that way. Drug addiction is something that shouldn't be scrutinized so harshly like that. But I was so fucking angry. And of course, it's anonymous. They 
you know, didn't have the balls to say that to me, to my face, or to attach their personal contact info. But I was so angry. And then another thing, and then from there, I saw someone wrote, you know, how I was greedy for setting up a GoFundMe for Ian. (laughs) When, if you looked closely, I created the page and the funds went directly to his mom. Even if that was directed towards me, I just lost 50% of my income. If we're putting it you know, financially. I just went from having to pay 50% of life expenses to now 100. So what if I need some financial support or to cover his celebration of life or any of these other things? Like people are just so insensitive. I just couldn't take another comment. So I don't look at literally anything unless someone emails or direct messages me through my personal account. I don't look at anything. Even if they're overwhelmingly supportive, I just can't emotionally do it as a soft pasta. You know, I just, I can't do it. <laughs> I tell you, I thought after this episode, I was going to like think about obviously the great lessons that you've expressed, but now I'm just hungry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it is like lunchtime over here. No, but, but you're right. There's, I think that's it's a good lesson. Like just people that don't have a podcast or even on the public light, like the, it's ignoring certain comments. It's just not taking it personal because sometimes those comments are coming from a place that we don't even understand. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. um, Danielle, I want to thank you for Course. So openly talking about this, I'm excited. I'm really happy you guys responded to me when I reached out, and um, it, it, you're a beautiful person, and uh, I appreciate you having the courage to share about this. What it's all about, and uh, you know you're still very much in the journey. So it means a lot for you to be able to open up and be comfortable sharing this story. Guarantee, plenty of people, men and women, are going to be resonating with your story. I know we just spoke about your podcast, but I, do, I would like I would like to, if you don't mind, giving a quick plug about it because you, you know you guys are doing so well. It's such a cool platform. Um, you feel free to shout out however you want, but definitely let people know that might not know who you are about what you got going on there. Sure. Yeah. So myself and my friend Cassie, we began a podcast called National Park After Dark about three years ago now. And um, it's become our full-time jobs. We left the veterinary world to talk about death and dying in the outdoors. Um, That is what we discuss on our show. Um, Anything from survival, death, animal encounters, and beyond. Everything is based in the national park system in the U.S. and around the world and in outdoor spaces because we love nature so much. But I'm also, like I said, I'm... Uh, pretty morbid minded. So I had to marry the two subjects somehow. And that's how the podcast came about. So yeah, that's uh, our show. And we've been doing it for a few years now. And Ian was our biggest supporter starting out. So, um, and he does the intro music. A lot of people didn't know that. Um, And they're like, where can I find that music? I'm like, "Ah, that was all Ian. He created it and played it. And um, thank you for having me on. Um, like I said, I've listened to your show and that's how I shouted it out on our show. I love talking about death and dying and I always have, and I love speaking about Ian. And I think that's why I was so happy that you reached out because I don't get to talk about him a lot and just to keep him alive is something that I'm so grateful for. So thank you for that. Amazing. Thank you. Seriously, thank you for being here. This podcast would be nothing without um, a voice like yours. So um, I think we both have very similar morbid minds, hence the podcast that we have, even though they're different in some ways. So uh, thank you again. I'm going to, for anyone that wants to listen to their podcast, please give it a whirl. I'm going to put all the descriptions in the in the bio and uh, you can check them out for real. And uh, Danielle, thank you so much. And until next time, 
See you later, dead talkers. I still haven't had a proper outro for my episode, so deal with it. Later, guys.